Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for freaks, geeks, and Bible study peeps. I'm Dr. Rachel Wren, ordained Lutheran pastor and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. And I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate and instructor at Emory University. Rosie is off this week, so Rachel and I are going to finish out our Advent series with the text for Advent week four. Okay, Rachel. Yes? Before I announce the texts that are assigned for this week, would you like to tell us which one you're going to be talking about, just to get that part out of the way? Why? Whatever would make you think I would deviate from the assigned reading for the day? <laughs> well, I've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks, so I can call it a gut instinct. <laughs> That's a good one. So my personal preference is always, always, always to preach Luke 1 on the fourth Sunday of Advent. Luke 1 is just... One of your favorite texts in the whole Bible. It is. I feel so seen. <laughs> well, it's a good one for sure. It really is. It's just got like these beautiful inner biblical references to other great scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. It's got two women talking together, angels, journeys, and a great song. What's not to love? Okay, so, so you're going to be tackling all of Luke 1 from the New Testament today uh -huh. in less than 15 minutes. No. Actually, I'm not even going to really tackle much of Luke 1 at all, despite my love for it. Today, Tim, I'm going to suggest we do something completely different. Another big surprise. Oh, right. oh I, know. I know. You're going you're gonna to go to the Old Testament. <laughs> no. I'm actually not going to talk much about preaching today. So I want to talk about something that's like considered maybe a pre-preaching tip. It's something that's been bubbling in the larger culture around Mary for about the past seven years, but it's not really something you'd preach on. It's something that when you're well-informed about it, it could help guide your preaching, or more importantly, your conversations with people about the Christmas story. Okay, so I'm intrigued. You're, you're not using the Old Testament. You're not even yep. talking about preaching, but you're doing this on first reading the Old Testament lectionary podcast. <laughs> You're done right, Ian. All right, all right. Well, it's your podcast. Go for it. <laughs> all right. So, so the deal is I want to talk about the issue about Mary and consent. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you've heard about this one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the issue of consent has been a big deal, like you say, for a number of years, especially since the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when you read about uh, what's going on in this text, it seems like the main issue that there shouldn't be an imbalance of power when someone is asked mm. to consent because the pressure mm -hmm. on the person of lesser power to say yes to a person of greater power, well, it's, it's overpowering. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so by today's standards, Mary couldn't have truly given like legitimate consent to God mm. because God's this being of ultimate overwhelming power. Right. If you read it that way, you're, you're kind of setting it up as a, a kind of abuse. Right. Right. Exactly. So preachers, if you're listening at this point, it's probably coming to mind that this is nothing that's going to actually make it into your sermon for Advent 4. And so you might be wondering why we're talking about this. You're going to get asked about it at some point, though. You might already have. So bear with me for a minute. In December of 2014, a, a writer named Valerie Tarico wrote an article for Salon.com called Why Rape is So Intrinsic to Religion. And she brings in this story in there and, and calls it outright a moment of rape hmm. between God and Mary. It's actually a really good article. And if you want to understand this issue, I'd really recommend you pause the podcast now and go read it. 
because this is kind of the first moment where this issue starts to get linked to Mary. The author's basic point is that there's this trope in many religions, not just Christian, of this powerful male deity wooing, seducing, taking, and impregnating a beautiful, often virgin, human woman. There's this line in the article that says, Within a society that treats female sexuality as a male possession, the only consent that could be violated is the consent of the woman's owner. In other words, the consent of the woman herself would have been a non-issue because her consent did not even lie in her own power to give. And she's right. She's right about that because for a long time, female sexuality hasn't been within the woman's own power. So this article got posted in 2014. In 2018, as far as I can tell, is the first time it shows up on Twitter. In 2020, it appears on Reddit. And this year, it has popped up on TikTok, of all places. Of course. So, dear listeners, you yourselves may not be on any of these platforms, but you sure have parishioners who are, especially your younger ones. So this is a topic you're going to have to address. Now, there are really great articles online that can walk you through both sides of this story very passionately. So if you're at all intrigued or appalled or outraged, pause the podcast and do a little Google research yourself. This is something we really need to think seriously about. But for today, for this podcast, I want to make four points about how you might talk about this or think about this concept. So first, the pastoral point. Mm -hmm. If you are approached by someone who has a question about this story, do the good pastoral thing and listen really deeply before you start to answer their question. Chances are they or someone they loved has experienced rape or sexual assault, and they may have a growing faith crisis that they need someone to walk with them through. But you won't be able to do that if you don't suss out the complete question underneath the initial salvo. So do the deep listening and ask the careful questions before you start talking about the text. Yeah, that's so important. I'm I'm glad you put it that way. And that is actually linked to my second point, too. Because if the person to whom you are speaking about this text is themselves a victim of sexual assault, they may actually see themselves in Mary's story as a fellow victim of assault. And it's really important at that moment that you don't try to take that away from them by saying that's not what this story is about. Mm -hmm. Victims of sexual trauma experience a trauma not only of their body, but of their voice, of, of their power. And finding themselves in the biblical text can be a really powerful way to recapture their voice and their power. But if we give into our first instinct to defend God and defend Mary and defend the Bible, we could re-traumatize their voice and their power. Dr. Wilda Gaffney has a really nice article called Did Mary Say Me Too? And you can find it online. It's on her blog. Dr. Gaffney both celebrates Mary's courage and acknowledges some of the similarities that exist between her experience and the experiences of those today who are approached by powerful men. Gaffney argues that ultimately, the complete possibility of saying no to a deity does make Mary, at the very least, a, quote, holy sister to those of us who do say me too. A holy sister to those of us who say me too. That's really a beautiful way to put it. So, So if someone is making sense of their trauma and finds a kind of solidarity with Mary, You're saying we shouldn't try to pull that away from them. Especially if finding that solidarity is somehow helping them make sense of their own experience. Mm. 
It may at some point become less helpful to them. They may want to view Mary's story differently. And then they may come to you and ask you specifically for another way to view the situation. And then you can branch out to other stuff. Yeah, that's such helpful pastoral stuff there, Rachel. You had a couple other points though, right? Yeah, I do. And these are for if you have someone come to you who is either struggling with their solidarity with Mary in that text or who has not had personal experience with sexual trauma and is still looking for some answers. Here's a couple things you can offer. One's a historical point and the other comes from a close reading of the text. So first, the historical. As Tariko rightly said in 2014 in that article I talked about, the reigning mythology of Jesus's time totally normalized the sexual abuse of women by deities. It was everywhere. There's this, there's this one example in Greek and Roman mythology that tells the story of the Spartan queen Leda. She was so beautiful, the story goes, that the head god Zeus just wanted her. So he transformed himself into a swan, laid down next to her, and raped her. And stories like that are all over the place. And the gods are never once reprimanded, and they are never once concerned with the consent of the woman. So this theme was sort of just out there in the water, so to speak. Yeah, it was all over the place. But that's not to say, so we shouldn't worry about its presence here. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not at all what I'm saying. I just want to be very, very clear. What I am saying is that Mary's story actually contradicts that mythology. So, you know, so like a lot of hay has been made about the fact that Mary said yes, which is, as I've said, rightly critiqued by feminists today who point out, as we said earlier, that one could never actually say no to a person of overwhelming power. But again, that's not the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to point out the fact that there is even a yes in this story at all, and that that is wild for this time period. Women were not allowed to say yes because they didn't own their sexuality, and yet the text has Mary saying it. Hmm. In fact, the text kind of shows that the divine messenger has to like stand around and wait for her to say yes and answer all of her questions before she gives it. Now, to be clear, there are still all sorts of issues of power difference that make this scenario a problem today. But it's important to note that it was remarkably different from and even contradictory to the literature of God's sex and women that was in Mary's time. Hmm. So, so the way that the text emphasizes Mary's consent in some form, while it doesn't really meet mm. our standards for consent today, you could almost consider it a, a foremother of this discussion about consent that, that we talk about in our own context. Yeah, I think so. I really do. So that's the historical point. And now for my last point, I went in and really dug in to try to do a close reading of the text and see what, what does it say? What does this, mm. the verbiage say? So a close reading of the text actually shows that Mary is, is a number of times given power in this encounter. So, so first of all, the angel tells her that she will name her son. That's a task that's usually given mm -hmm. to the father in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Matthew, it's Joseph who right, names right. the son Jesus. You know, and, and even in Luke, Elizabeth's relatives won't believe her that her own son is to be named John until they can get her husband, Zechariah, to exactly, confirm it. Exactly. <laughs> but, but here in Luke, that's not the case with Mary. The angel specifically gives her the power to mm -hmm. name her son. And then there's this other, these two words that are used when she asks what's going to happen to her. Angel Gabriel says that the Holy Spirit will, epileusitai, will come upon you, and then that the Most High will episkiase, 
overshadow you. So what happens when you look at these words in Luke is you get a little bit of context for them. First of all, there's absolutely nothing sexual about either of these words in the New Testament. The first word, the root of which is eperchomai, is used again in Acts 1.8. It's when Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will epelthontos, will come upon them and will give them dinamin, power. This word is used to describe the giving of power to the disciples. Mm. So that what Gabriel describes happening to Mary is not sexual, but it has to do with being given power. Interesting. Yeah. And the second word is, it has to do less with power, but more with divine presence. This is that episkiase, overshadow you. Mm -hmm. When you look for that word in Luke, we see it in Luke 9, verse 34, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John are standing on a mountaintop and Elijah and Moses are there and Peter stumbles his way into asserting that they should build three dwelling places. Then suddenly this cloud comes and episkiasen everyone there. And if we're arguing that that word has a sexual connotation, then friends, we've got way more things to talk about, <laughs> about what's going on in the transfiguration. Um. What the angel describes happening to Mary, both words are completely devoid of sexual connotation. The only connotations they carry are of divine power and of divine presence. So this is really interesting. Maybe part of the issue that we face as moderns reading this text is that we're reading it in translation. Mm. And so we associate with the English words come upon and overshadow a kind of sexual connotation that may not have been there at all in the in the earliest form of this story. It's hard to say anything about how they were used at that time period, but we can certainly say how they're used in the rest of the book of Luke and Acts. And there's just nothing in them that suggests a sexual connotation. I mean, I think if I were to sum up for today, I feel like we need to read Mary's story with kind of holding these both in tension. Like I said, mm. first of all, if you've got someone who finds their experience of trauma in this text, then that needs to be honored. Secondly, we also need to say that this is not giving a consent that is sufficient for today. Like it's just not. This should not be used as a model for consent today. Mm. But thirdly, if we pay close attention to what is happening in this text, what is described in this text, we find not only that Mary describes it as a blessed experience, but that it also has these connotations of power and presence, which can often get lost when we just make Mary the mother figure. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I mean, this is going a little beyond the pericope, right? But this is the version of the story that has Mary's Magnificat, right? Right. Yeah, which exactly. which also which and here's a, an Old Testament reference borrows from Hannah's yeah. story back in First Samuel two, mm -hmm. which is all about the giving of power to those who are powerless. Nice. I hadn't even made that connection, Tim. But that's that's yeah, that's really nice. Full circle. Rolls come full circle. <laughs> that's what we do here, folks. That's what we do. Gosh, this is uh, quite a bit to think about, Rachel. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you out there who are preparing sermons for the fourth Sunday of Advent, maybe, maybe we could frame this, this whole episode as a preaching pitfall. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you, that you don't present this story yeah. as a model for sexual consent. <laughs> yeah, but maybe even, you know, taking those two words and, and fleshing them out for your parishioners. I think that could be a, a powerful way to do it. 
Yes. I think we've used the word power about 200 times in this episode. I know. Way too <laughs> well, many. <laughs> it's the theme. It's the theme, right? Because I think there's something... Um, now I can't Powerful. think of another word. Yes. <laughs> compelling. <laughs> compelling. There's something compelling about reading this story through the lens of the power dynamics mm, and seeing yeah. how part of the gift that's given to Mary is an elevation of her power within her cultural context. Her agency. That's a perfect way to summarize it. That see, that's what I that's what I took this long. How long are we at to get to? <laughs> Well, thank you for um, putting the work in to, to bring this theme to mind for me and for our listeners. And I think it, even though it's not about a sermon preparation per se, I think this is going to help really bring some life to what preachers do on 4th Advent. I hope so. Okay, well, that's going to wrap us up for this week, folks. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. You can find us on Facebook where we drop all of our weekly episodes. And you can find everything that we've ever done on our own website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Of course, we give our thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for the grant that they've given us that helps us do this. And we thank all of you who listen regularly, who send us feedback. We're so glad to know you and to be a part of this with you. Amen. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. A blessed Advent to you all. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel. <laughs> Can I call you that from now on? Oh my gosh. The hardest, hardest part of the whole podcast is saying my own name. <laughs>